The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Riley Fessler, producer of the DSR Network of Podcasts. As the war in Ukraine grinds on, this week's episode of From the Archive takes us back to the early days of Ukraine's counteroffensive with host Rosa Brooks, joined by Ed Luce and David Sanger. The episode also includes originally members-only content, so if you want more like this every week, please become a member. We hope you enjoy. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Welcome to Deep State Radio. This is Rosa Brooks. David Rothkopf is away once again at an undisclosed location, although we understand it is the very heart of the heart of American power in Washington, D.C., And we're going to be expecting a full report from him as soon as he returns. And I'm hosting in his place today. We have two of our usual suspects here with us. Ed Luce, of course, as all of our listeners know, is the U.S. national editor and economist at the Financial Times. And David Sanger, White House and national security correspondent and a senior writer at the New York Times, where he's been reporting for more than 40 years. And since David is not here, we don't have to talk about my job, which I'm, I'm really happy about. So I know that David left firm instructions for us to discuss Ukraine, and we will. I promise we will. But I I can't help but first ask you, Ed, some very important questions about your your birth country. Queen Elizabeth died uh, just under a week ago. And how will your nation carry on? I mean, I think more importantly, Deepest condolences on the passing of your of your mother, Barbara Ehrenreich, who was oh, a wonderful, wonderful writer and figure and, and thinker and provocateur and, and just many things. And I'm, I can only imagine you're devastated. I am, uh, although she was not as rich as the Queen of England, I, I have to say. But you know what? She got fascinating obituaries. I'm just reading about her life. And I was just trying to imagine when I was reading these, what it was like growing up with her as your mother. So. One day we'll have to devote an entire episode. Yes, yes. well, I'll, I'll guess I'll tell you many things about it. I will say the one and only thing I will reveal right now is that throughout my childhood, we lived next door to a chimpanzee. But I'll, I'll leave that there right now because I really do want to talk about the queen. But I couldn't help wonder, Ed, as I tried to distract myself in the last week by, by reading about the British royal family, does, does this matter 
you know, I I don't mean obviously it matters to the people who loved her, of course, but but from a from a political sense within within the UK, does this matter? Is is this just kind of celebrity news and an opportunity for more you know front page tabloid stories, or is this going to make a a real difference in in how how people think about their nation, how they think about themselves? the role of UK in in European and global politics does does this, does does the queen and the transition to charles does it matter beyond the pageantry and the loss to her family i doubt it you know and i'm beginning partly because of my accent i've been doing quite a bit of tv on on the royal family um uh, well on the queen's passing here in 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 washington in the last few days and um you know, I keep wanting to talk about other issues because I've said <laughs> I've I've said all I've got to say. Um, you know, which is d- deeply sad. And this is a figure that's been ubiquitous and um, admirable. But um, you know, the monarchy is about politics, and Charles might you know be more prone to being political. But he knows his he knows which side of his bread is buttered, and he knows the job is to be apolitical. And he's had. He's 73, so by this stage, if he doesn't know it by now, when will he? So I don't, I think there tends to be a lot of freightage invested or sort of loaded on to this moment, which just isn't really merited. I don't think Britain's about to become a republic. I don't think that this dramatically increases the chance that Scotland will break off. But Scotland wants independence from Britain. It doesn't want to become a republic. So this doesn't really uh, impact on that. Liz Truss's ascension to the prime ministership does because you know she's not beloved in scotland although perhaps slightly less hated than boris johnson so no i i don't think this is hugely significant people say well more common more of the remaining 14 commonwealth countries will become a republic i think they should if i were canadian or australian or from one of the caribbean nations or one of the pacific islands i would too and i wouldn't sort of intend any disrespect to britain by doing so but there's only 14 left and there were 60 or plus at one stage. So it happened when the queen was queen. I don't see this as a big, a big political event, either internationally and uh, even in Britain. OK, I watched uh, a good deal of the funeral procession, but unfortunately I was watching it on a Spanish language television station, so I didn't understand anything. So I appreciate your, your explaining this to us, Ed. Let's let's move on to Ukraine. Lots happening in the last few days. And David, I wonder if you could just start us off by by telling our listeners, you know, what just happened? Things are things are moving fast. And, you know, what has happened in the last few days? And then then I want to move on and talk a little bit about well, what does it mean? So what's happened is that during the course of the summer, the Ukrainians, in very close consultation with the United States and Britain, put together a plan to try to take the initiative and launch a counteroffensive. And the question was, could they launch one that would show immediate and devastating results by going at what they thought were the weakest links in the Russian occupation strategy? We all know, and we've known for a while, the Russians are running out of troops. They're not using their best ammo. A lot of their equipment has been devastated. And so the question was, could they maximize on that? They came to the U.S. with a plan. The U.S. suggested amendments to the plan after running a series of tabletop operations with the Ukrainians on it, which tells you how deeply involved 
the U.S. is in this war. The U.S. may not be sending troops, but certainly they are not only providing arms, but the strategy under which to go use them. It was essentially a two-pronged attack where the Russians thought the first prong was the major one, and turned out the second one was the one that was uh, more damaging to them. In some areas, the Ukrainians have been more successful than others, but it looks like they are taking back some key cities, uh, including Kherson. The psychological impact on the Russians may be bigger than the physical. For the first time, we have seen backlash against Putin, but it hasn't been from the anti-war activists, interestingly. It's been from the pro-war contingent that is now making the case that Russia is screwing up the war and no longer looks 10 feet tall to the rest of the world. And their advice has ranged from hit the Ukrainians with everything you've got, missiles and so forth, to let's get out of this before it becomes another Afghanistan. It's not critical to us. But the very fact that people are feeling that this is worth taking on Putin's air of invincibility is pretty fascinating. And it has many people in the administration wondering, are we at a real turning point? Are we counting our victories too early here? This is only days in. And to give you a sense of how new this is, the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, was on a train into Kiev with his staff to see Zelensky just late last week. And at that point, the Ukrainians had not made very much progress at all. But now they seem to. So big questions ahead. Can they continue to roll? Can they hold what they have? And what will Putin's reaction be? Will it be to go redefine the war objectives and say, ah, we didn't really care about that area anyway, which is sort of what he did in Kiev for at least for a little while when he had to pull back in April and May? Or will it be to say, okay, we're not putting up with this and basically carpet bomb the cities? He's already been taking out a lot of power grids and so forth. And then the fear is that he would use an unconventional weapon, tactical nuclear weapon, chemical, maybe cyber, although there are great differences in what kind of results he would have with each of those, in order to show the Ukrainians that he's not going to be humiliated. Before I move on to Ed, David, can you can you also tell us what's what's going on at the, at the uh, uh, tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, Zaporizhia nuclear plant? Obviously, the there's been a lot of concern there, and you've written about this a good deal, that in the course of the shelling back and forth, and each side is blaming the others, that there could be some sort of catastrophe at the nuclear plant that would make Chernobyl look like small potatoes. Um, but I understand that there are discussions going on to in some way, shape, or form, make it a little bit of a no-fire zone? Or what, what's, what's the latest on that? So the good news is it's not a Chernobyl design. And the only thing you need to know about is the design of this reactor is a bit safer than, than uh, Chernobyl. That said, never a good thing when you were shelling nuclear reactors. There are six reactors at this plant, which is the largest in Europe. Five of them have been shut down. And the effort right now is to shut down the sixth. The Ukrainians have been reluctant to do all of this because they get 20% of their electricity from this plant. That's a big part of your power consumption to lose. But they were losing it anyway because the transmission lines have been shelled and damaged and they, they can't get them out. The U.S. has been urging them to shut these down because 
if you have a controlled shutdown, then the chances that you're going to have a huge accident in which an active reactor suddenly loses its coolant and you end up with a three-mile island kind of problem is a lot higher if you have a running reactor than if you have one that's shut down. You can still have troubles when they're shut down because you still have to keep the cores cool. You still have to keep the, the nuclear waste cool. But your level of risk drops. Part of the problem here is the plant is occupied by Russian forces. The Russian forces are not allowing the engineers to get to key parts of the plant that they need to secure. And part of the plan that's underway right now is to take back Zaporizhia. Whether or not they can do that without triggering exactly the kind of accident everybody's been trying to avoid is the key question. Ed, how do you think the Ukrainians pulled this off? In some ways, it seems so such a surprising reversal for the Russians. I, you know, watching this as a you know, non-military person, it seemed like we had we had moved into the slog phase of the war, where arguably, you know, sheer mass would eventually be on the side of the Russians. But clearly, some pretty stunning reversals, as as David said. How did they do it, and how did Russia? How was Russia caught so off guard? I mean, that's an interesting question, but the answer is probably in the ways they've previously been caught off guard. Uh, you know, I mean, this is on the scale of reversals, probably up there with the 40-mile traffic jam to, to Kiev earlier this year at the beginning of the war. This is a humiliation It's it's um, that exposes Russia's weaknesses. And one of them is that they don't really have mass, that sort of, you know, that Second World War assumption we always have that eventually weight of numbers will win doesn't really sort of hold up in this case. You, you, Ukraine has, by most estimates, more people in uniform in the field than Russia. Uh, Russia could, and David alluded to this, Russia could have a general mobilization. Putin could say, look, this is no longer a special military operation. This is a war. And therefore, we're going to have to have conscription and full mobilization. And we're going to have to put in like another 100, 150,000 Russians to overwhelm Ukrainians with weight of numbers. But right now, you know, that would be a, a very big political risk. It would also be a humiliation because, you know, Putin's entire premise is it wouldn't require any of this and this isn't really a war. So there's that. The fact, you know, as has always been the case, Ukrainians are motivated. And, you know, there are a lot more of them have been trained over the years and this year by um, Western partners. I'd suspect a lot higher quality training than their Russian counterparts have had. Their officers have tactical autonomy, and they've been getting more and more weapons, Not maybe not fighter jets. That's still a red line that, that Biden doesn't want to cross. But pretty much everything else, the HIMA, the HIMARS, the other kinds of artillery, anti-tank weapons, high-tech stuff, a lot of intelligence sharing. So I suspect the reasons for Ukraine's military, recent military successes are ones that will persist. David was with me at the Aspen Security Forum in July, and Bill Burns was there. Also, Richard Moore, uh, the head of MI6, were there. And they were both saying strikingly similar things that, look, we're building up their capacity, we're building up their training, and they've got to, this was a metaphor Richard Moore used, but they've got to score before halftime in soccer terms. They've got to score a goal before halftime, and that is winter. They've got to make strategic gains and reversals before winter. And that's something he predicted would happen. And it is happening. 
how do you think this will affect the degree and nature of European support for Ukraine militarily? I think quite positively. You know, a couple of things have been going on there. One, and I think we've discussed this before, is Putin. Putin did what the leader of the miners' union did with Margaret Thatcher in Britain in 1984, made the mistake of calling a coal miners' strike at the beginning of summer, not at the beginning of winter, when demand was low. Putin has been using his gas and oil um, lever and threatening to use it since early summer. And then last week has fully cut off Nord Stream pipeline way prematurely. If he'd waited, uh, if he'd lulled the Germans and, that and the Dutch and the others into a full sense of security, that this supply would be continuous. And then started threatening in October, November, very, very different situation to what we've got now. And what we have right now is stockpiling of um, gas stocks is, is higher than, um, than normal for this time of year. So Europe's had an ample warning and it's taken that ample warming, warning. But in terms of military support for Ukraine, this is definitely nothing succeeds like success. The French have been real laggards in terms of supplying equipment to the Ukrainians. Macron's indicated that he's now going to step up that quite significantly, and I believe others will do too. Liz Truss, whatever you think of her, premised her leadership victory on being even more gung-ho and hawkish in favor of Ukraine than Boris Johnson was. So we're going to expect more from the British too, and Biden's going to ask for more money from Congress. David, thinking about the, the US front, how do you think this is going to have an impact on, on support for Ukraine? In Congress, I, you know, I don't think anything's obviously going to change the Biden administration, which has already been strongly supportive. But do you see this shifting the either political discourse or further opening the the financial and military spigots here in the U.S.? It may well. I mean, we had thought at the beginning of the summer that the fifty-two billion that was authorized, not all, not all that has been spent by a long shot, might be the last big aid that we would see to Ukraine. But if there is a sense that something's actually being done with these arms, that they are being successfully shaped into a strategy to push back on Putin, that really builds the case for Biden. Now, I think it's going to be hard between now and the election to get much more through, but they don't need to get much more through for now because there's so much left unspent from what has already been authorized. The hard part's going to come next year. And of course, we don't know who's going to be in control of both houses of, of Congress. But Republicans in general, oddly enough, have been more reluctant than Democrats have here, which is sort of an interesting role reversal when you think of the sort of first anti-Soviet and then anti-Russian views on the Hill in the past. To the question of Europe, Ed's right. The fact that Putin signaled this so early has led to greater preparation. I think the really hard part is going to come in January or February when the winter is still on and those stores have been begun to deplete and prices are going up. And if prices are going up, again, it's important that consumers think that they are paying a high price for something that's actually working. The big problem for Europe is that the structural answer to this question, which is build more LNG terminals so that they can bring in more of this gas by ship, become far less dependent on these now turned off pipelines, is a very long-term process. It's going to take years. 
And so while we know that over the long run, this is destructive to the Russian economy because they won't be able to ship uh, as much, in the short run, it's going to hurt the Europeans more. And the big unknown here is the Chinese, who have continued to buy quite uh, aggressively from Russia. Presumably, if the price cap that the U.S. Treasury is talking about, they're trying to put on Russian oil, basically above the cost of production and still make it worthwhile for the Russians to sell, but not high enough for them to really capitalize on uh, the price increases of the war. If that works, and it's a big if, the Chinese presumably will insist on the lower price. So the big struggle to look for is whether or not the price cap system that the U.S. has described can actually be made to work. Let's talk about China a little bit more. China has been, I don't know how I would characterize it, ambivalently supportive of Russia throughout this, which is to say they are not willing to break with Russia. They've various various points in time declared their solidarity, but they have done so with a marked lack of enthusiasm. And is is Ed, do you think that the recent Ukrainian successes are going to alter their calculus at all in terms of exactly how close they're they're interested in standing to Russia, et cetera? Look, I think, I mean, if they were tempted to provide overt military aid to Russia, that temptation would have been um, significantly lessened in the last few days. But I think they've taken a decision which they broadly stuck to, that they don't want to directly cross the line. They don't want to trigger secondary sanctions. You know, their growth is already slowing in China for a number of reasons, some of them self-inflicted to do with zero COVID. And to, to have a secondary sanction sort of shitstorm on top of that would tip China into recession at just the point Xi Jinping is crowning himself for a third unprecedented third consecutive term. So I doubt very much it's going to lead to China um, trying to tip the balance by intervening with materiel and, and resources for Russia directly to fight. But I don't think they're going to abandon Russia. And, you know, it's very telling that later this week, for the first time since COVID, she will travel, travel outside of China and he's traveling to Uzbekistan to meet Putin. He'll be meeting others. It's uh, this regional Shanghai Cooperation Council. But the real aim is to talk to Putin. And, you know, the last foreign leader he met or the last significant one he met was Putin. I mean, the last one before the war was Putin a week before it um, at the, um, the Olympics in Beijing. So the no limits friendship between Russia and China, I think, will remain. But, you know, the leverage is more and more on China's side. And China's not treating this like a philanthropic exercise. Putin complained a few days ago that the Chinese were tough bargainers when it came to energy price negotiations. Europe is now weaning itself off Russian gas. Russia can't get its non-Siberian gas to China. It has to build new pipelines to get its European gas to China. That takes years. And you need long-term contracts. The question is, what kind of pricing will the Chinese pay? And as David mentioned, they're going to go for the lower price every time. They're not in the charity business, even though they do see very strong geopolitical common interests with Russia. So... I don't think there's any I don't think there's any Hail Mary sitting in Beijing for Putin to deploy. China will continue to ambivalently, well, they, they will diplomatically support Russia. They're not going to vote against it at the UN. You know, they're not going to stop buying its oil, but they're not gonna 
that they're not going to get involved in this war. They're not going to try and dig Putin out of the, the shithole he's built for himself. They're not going to be able to. The shithole is the diplomatic terminology. Thank you for, for it's sharing that. Norman mentioned. <laughs> That's refined British diplomatic language uh, that, that you have there. You know, it's been interesting to see what the Chinese were willing to donate to the cause, and they weren't. They are, of course, willing to buy oil. They have not provided other financial support. When the Russians came looking for drones, they said no, and instead sent them on to Iran, and they have the drones from Iran now. They have not provided ammunition. So they are going out of their way not to create a reason for the Biden administration to do the secondary sanctions that Ed mentioned. It's the point in the podcast where David Rothkopf makes us say things like, boy, are you going to be sorry that you didn't become a member of Deep State Radio because now we're going to tell a bunch of secrets in the remaining portion of the show. And you will never know what those secrets are unless you become a member. They're going to be really good secrets. So we're going to take a very short break. Those of you who are members can feel smug about it. And those of you who are not members will just have to curse yourselves and and repent and consider becoming members, which is easy to do uh, and cheap at dsrnetwork.com. We're going to take a short break and we will be right back. Welcome back to our members and subscribers. Now we're going to have the really good part of the discussion. We've been saving it all for you. All that other stuff was just fluff. But let me ask you, David and Ed, David, you, you spoke at the very beginning of our conversation about you know, one of the surprising, interesting, maybe promising things that is happening is that for the first time, we're seeing cracks internally in support for the uh, military efforts in Ukraine, the special military operation, as uh, Putin insists it must be called uh, if you don't want to go to jail. We're beginning to see Putin supporters raising questions about the way the conflict is going. Is this going to matter, right? Is, is, do you think that this is something, is, is it going to get worse? Is, and, is it, and, and more concretely, is it going to threaten Putin himself? Or is this just going to be an opportunity for Putin to say, okay, off with their heads when it comes to the, the generals and the military and intelligence advisors, and, and he survives just fine? Or, or, or is this sort of the beginning of a potentially much deeper crack in support for Putin? You know, we've had other moments, Rosa, where we thought that, in fact, Putin might be losing some popular support. There was a famous one a decade ago when protests arose in Moscow and he cracked down on them involving the conduct of an election. And when Hillary Clinton backed the protesters, many believe that is what led Putin ultimately to do the cyber operations in the 2016 election against Hillary Clinton's campaign. We've had other moments where we thought something was bubbling along and he's always managed to put it down. But he's clearly walking a pretty narrow path here. He's under pressure to get more troops, but he doesn't want to do a general mobilization that would bring middle-class kids from Moscow and St. Petersburg into the fight, because that would contribute significantly. Instead, he's been drawing his troops pretty much from 
outer reaches of the country, ethnic minorities, and so forth. We think that it would be difficult for him to make a case for basically all-out war when his message so far has been, sit back, there's not a whole lot to see here, it's not affecting your daily life. But if over time the export controls of the U.S. and the Western allies put in place, keep people from replacing their iPhones and getting new cars and getting their dishwasher and all that, then, you know, you could imagine some opposition to him growing. But I wouldn't be too optimistic about it. Every moment that we have seen opposition to Putin, he's managed to crush it. Does anybody have a good sense of of how many casualties the Russians have taken during the course of this conflict? Because I one would think that there have already been enough that the ripples from the number of Russian families losing losing children to this conflict would already be being felt. We know that British estimate, which is the most aggressive one, which is 20,000 Russian dead and maybe 80,000 total casualties, which would include that that 20,000. The U.S. was more cautious, has now kind of caught up with the British estimate, roughly. To put that in perspective, the United States lost probably about 7,000 total in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq over the course of 20 years. It's already more dead, that I believe, than we think the Russians suffered in their entire Afghanistan experience. And, and this is in a, in a population that's less than half the size of the U.S. population. Right. So those are big numbers. They are big numbers. Why do you think they haven't made much difference? I mean, my is that is that because of who the troops have been and in terms of the relative political power, political and economic power of their of their families and regions? Or, or is it just that sufficient media censorship has meant that the average Russian is not really aware of the number of deaths? The who was certainly a piece of it. If this had been, you know, the elite of Moscow and St. Petersburg and all, I think it would be a very different thing. We've seen that happen, you know, in American wars in decades ago as well, uh, at various moments. The big question is, at what moment do the numbers become so big and the reports of humiliating defeat, like the kind that we've seen in the past few days, become so pervasive that people reach for sources outside of state-run media that Putin basically is at that point created a monster that he he can't contain. Remember, he thought this was going to be a really short war. They didn't do casualty estimates, we don't believe, for a war that would you'd still be in the midst of six months later. Because under their plan, Ukraine was supposed to have folded five months ago. I mean, if, if I think not necessarily the majority, but a massive share from Chechnya and Dagestan or from the Wagner, you know, uh, mercenary group. Uh, and even though the, the Wagner mercenary group, you know, they're the crack ones but, uh, and, and have been losing very, very high numbers, according to some of the estimates and the anecdotes I've been hearing. That's not the mainstream middle-class urban Russian population. So there's that. And even talk, David, will know the answer to this, of, of having Syrian mercenaries in there. Have Syrians actually been deployed? I don't know. We haven't, I haven't seen any definitive evidence that they have. I know there's been discussion of it, but so far I have not 
not seen it. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Doesn't mean it, it hasn't happened. But you, I mean, you have to you have to believe that. Therefore, given that only fifteen thousand were lost in almost a decade in Afghanistan, and that contributed, along with Chernobyl, you know, to the breaking of the Soviet Union, that in a country that's far more accustomed to being able to speak out, in spite of Putin's autocracy, that it's had a quarter of a century, no more, almost forty years of free speech in some form or another. And that's much more used to its creature comforts in terms of, you know, just basic standards of living than late Soviet era, that a general mobilization would be a massive risk. It would be a massive political risk, even though the criticism of Putin is mostly coming from the right. And even though the real threat to Putin is surely from the right. This would ensure it came from everybody, I think. I, I, I think a general mobilization would be a massive risk. So let me talk about another risk that, David, you also mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, and, and it's the, the one I think we all worry about most, even if it seems relatively unlikely, is that Putin backed into a corner facing increased pressure at home to do something, do something decisive, bring home a victory, so that it's all been worthwhile turns to anything from, as you say, stepped up cyber attacks uh, on Ukraine, on the West, to chemical weapons, to tactical nuclear weapons. Do you think there is, how would you assess the probability of each of those? And if you were Putin, what do you think he might be most tempted by? I think the probability of cyber attacks is very high. How effective they'll be is a question. We didn't see the kind of cyber attacks that we had expected in the first months of the war. We think that was because Putin, A, was distracted by the fact that he was having a harder time than he thought, but B, that they were reluctant to cut into an attack networks they thought they were going to have to use when they were occupying Ukraine. That calculus is now very different. They don't have an early option to occupy much of Ukraine. So I think the incentive to use cyber is still going to be pretty high. The only issue is that Putin may conclude that it's more efficient if you're trying to turn out the lights or the water system to simply put a missile through a substation rather than try to go to the trouble of doing an elegant uh, cyber attack. For chemical, seems harder for me to imagine doing that. He might want to and see if he could blame the Ukrainians. We certainly have seen them use chemical agents before in, in assassinations, but they haven't used them in sort of widespread use. The hard one that everybody's trying to figure out is nuclear and whether or not he would dare to reach for some kind of a nuclear option. And we simply do not know the answer to that question. He might try a demonstration effect. In other words, send a nuclear weapon off over the Black Sea or an unpopulated area. That would result in a lot of condemnation, not a lot of military upside for him. If he used one in a city against a specific target, I think the administration would face some really hard choices. I'm having a hard time imagining Joe Biden authorizing the use of a nuclear weapon in return for a nuclear weapon, especially against a non-NATO state. 
But you could imagine this administration saying, now is the moment to completely isolate Putin from the rest of the world, cut off all currency exchanges, cut off everything that this is uh, beyond the pale. If he used it in a populated area, I think then you get into some really hard choices. Do you retaliate with a non-nuclear weapon? I can't see a condition in my mind where the U.S. government or the Western allies would use a nuke in response to a nuke, especially because it wouldn't be on, on a NATO, an attack on a NATO nation. That seems right to me. But what, of course, I, I worry about is, is precisely what I've worried about all along, which, which means that what's, our, what's the deterrent for Putin? Because I assume that he would make exactly the same calculus. Um, Ed, what do you think? If uh, we get to the situation where I've heard more talk of this recently, Zelensky thinks he can retake Crimea and, you know, you do get significant support from the US, Poland, Britain for that scenario. And Putin does threaten nuclear weapons or by the same token, Zelensky persuades us he can finish it off and bring this to a hasty conclusion some other way. If he gets these fighter jets, these MiGs or whatever it is, that would give it decisive air control over Ukraine, then I, I've no doubt that Putin will begin to saber rattle again. And he did He did earlier on when he was suffering the most significant military humiliation in um, March and April. He did then. And I've no doubt he would resort to exactly the same thing again, because that is the logic of you losing on the conventional plane. You, you then switch to where you're superior. And that's what he would do. I don't think he would hesitate. Would he, you know, would he do so by firing nuclear missiles at population centers? I doubt it. I think he would conduct a test over the Black Sea or, or maybe have tactical nuclear weapons, battlefield nuclear weapons deployed, you know, in some very remote area. But it, it would be the same as dropping it, frankly, on a city, the ele electrifying effect on the world and on our capacity to respond would be huge. Beyond that, it gets so sort of um, dystopianly speculative. I don't really feel qualified to to go. Dystopian uh, speculation, that's my specialty. Yeah, indeed. Exactly. So this, is a, you, Rosa. this is a very good Rosa moment because, you know, she has been secretly buying up underground bunkers all along the way. But, you know, Rosa, the very fact that we are discussing this and that we've been discussing it since Putin issued those first nuclear threats in the opening days of the war, pretty remarkable. I mean, I can't remember a period of time, even during the Cold War, except the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we thought this was truly a viable option for either an adversary or the United States or something like that. I mean, there were fears of it, many movies made about it, but not a huge amount of, gee, what are the, what are the percentage chances we're going to see that in the next few months? Well, this is an area where I, I have to hope, and I, and I do actually think that the the influence of uh, Chinese leaders on Putin is is helpful. I can't see any reason that the Chinese would say anything other than do not cross those red lines. It would be catastrophic for everybody. So, so hopefully that will have a, a dampening effect. We are out of time, although we're not out of topic. So we're going to bring this episode of Deep State Radio to a close. Um, we have many more terrific episodes, and you can see what you can watch or listen to and what you're missing uh, by going to our website, thedsrnetwork.com. 
and thank you to all of our members for joining us. Uh, we will we will be back with you in a week. <laughs>